Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello everyone, I'm Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. If you like Roman history, then I'm sure you'll enjoy my show. It picks up right where the History of Rome podcast left off and chronicles the dramatic trials and travails of the Eastern Romans as they fight on through the Middle Ages. I mean, you're already listening to one podcast by a Brit talking about a big empire, so why not one more? Find it at thehistoryofbyzantium.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to Sam. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 36 Root and Branch. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last time, we looked at how the official position on witchcraft, if it had been one of zealotry and suspicion, had swung back towards caution. Fewer convictions were made against suspected witches, especially when the accusations involved impossible feats of flight and transformation. In many cases, the accusers themselves faced scrutiny, which they might not have expected. The establishment view was not universal across the Kingdom of England, and as we shall see in a series of future episodes, the capacity for an extreme and unprecedented witch panic was present below the surface. This week, we'll return to the Emerald Isle, and see what's been going on across the Irish Sea. If I'm remembering rightly, we haven't discussed Ireland on the show since around episode 19, when the Irish Parliament sent their delegations to James, this was about the dispute over Catholic and Protestant members of Parliament. It might stick in your memory because of the moment when one candidate for Speaker of the House sat on the other candidate for Speaker of the House. When this Speaker-on-Speaker action occurred, a future Lord Deputy of Ireland was present as an MP, Oliver St John, or Oliver St. John, as it is apparently pronounced. 
This Oliver Sinjin was a relative of the other Oliver Sinjin who will play a major role in the upcoming Wars of the Three Kingdoms. For now, though, when I speak of Oliver Sinjin, I mean Lord Deputy Sinjin. Sinjin was the successor to the Lord Deputyship of Sir Arthur Chichester. We heard a lot about Chichester last year, and Sinjin was a loyal and capable advisor throughout their partnership. Sinjin was himself a beneficiary of the plantation of Ireland, acquiring 2,500 acres in Armagh, though he was critical about many aspects of the plantation policy. He had been elected to the Parliament of Ireland during the dispute over the Speaker, and had been one of the MPs who travelled to London to petition James for his adjudication. Sinjin received and surrendered a few different titles over the intervening years, which we won't get into because they aren't directly relevant, though it is important to know that Sinjin never received a great Irish office. So it was a real surprise for the Irish, for the English court, and possibly even Sinjin himself, when he was appointed the Lord Deputy of Ireland on the 2nd of July, 1616. He was certainly qualified for the position. He had spent most of the last two decades in Ireland, in military, civil and political positions. He was financially invested in the kingdom. His two-and-a-half-acre plantation was just one of the properties he held. But still, this was a surprise. His sudden elevation can be explained by his new patron, a rising star you might have heard of called George Villiers. The connection was not just political. Sinjin's niece was married to Villiers' half-brother. He returned to Ireland in August 1616 and began his rule in the name of the king. Sinjin led several measures to reduce the power and influence of Catholics within Ireland. In October 1617, he banished Catholic priests who had been educated abroad. The following year, he invested significant time and resources into collecting fines for recusancy, and punished towns which elected recusants to office by withdrawing their privileges. Plantation continued in Ulster under his leadership, and was expanded into County Wexford, County Longford, and County Leitrim, among others. His earlier criticism of the dangers of plantation seems to have been overwhelmed by the desires and needs of his patron, Buckingham, who parceled out lands for awards and patronage. So, what were some of the problems which St. John had with plantation? Well, it's unclear though the new English class, which now dominated the Dublin government, and of which St. John was part, were far from disinterested and neutral parties. If you recall, the plantation projects were intended to be both financially beneficial to their tenants, their owners, and the Crown, and, quote-unquote, civilise the native Irish population, through both proximity and outright replacement. The idea was that a proprietor would pay for a portion of land, and they would then bring in new tenant farmers from England, Scotland, and Wales. These new tenants would be Protestant, and appropriately quote-unquote civilised. The proprietors would fund the fortification of their lands to ensure that violence on the scale of the Nine Years' War wouldn't wipe away decades of colonial progress. 
That was the idea, anyway. And many of the charters granted to proprietors had these as vital and indisputable conditions. Bring in new colonists. Fortify these settlements. Ensure everyone speaks English and isn't Catholic. Simple enough. But the thing is, all that costs money, and it takes time. And who's really going to know if your grant of land in the middle of County Leitrim is still farmed by Gaelic, Catholic, Irish? So, that's what many of the new English proprietors did. Ulster remained the flagship of the plantation policy, and these conditions were more comprehensively stuck to here than elsewhere. But as we've covered before, even here, policy didn't quite match reality. Elsewhere, as Professor Canny puts it, instead of being satisfied with and settling what had been granted to them, many of the new English proprietors sought after more land, either by purchase from their fellow countrymen or by prying into the titles of indigenous landowners, end quote. The desire for more land more quickly meant that increasingly native Gaelic-Irish were kept as tenants, not enough British colonists were brought in to solidify political control, and the fortifications were similarly left unbuilt as proprietors sought to earn back their investment as quickly and as cheaply as possible. Canny describes this as a moving frontier, where the proprietors quickly jump from one purchase of land to another with little of the investment of cash and people that the Crown expected and demanded. Lionel Cranfield, the Earl of Middlesex. He hasn't appeared in our narrative for a good few months after he lost the battle of court politics and found himself impeached. And yet, here he is again. He was Lord Treasurer, and had the unenviable task of trying to bring the Crown's finances to somewhere in the vague vicinity of OK. As you might recall, it was like trying to fill a sieve with water. Whenever Middlesex cut costs in one area or discovered a new source of income, the King or Buckingham would immediately spend this new surplus and then some. Well, one of the many holes in this sieve of the Crown's finances was the Kingdom of Ireland. Between 1604 and 1619, the English administration in Ireland cost an average of £47,000 a year. This was despite the kingdom being, formerly, at peace, and the vast investment of resources into the plantations that spread across the island, plantations which were meant to be turning a profit. As Canny puts it, the costs of governing Ireland were inexplicably high, just as the crown income there was inexplicably low. The army remained the greatest expense for the Dublin government, with an average size of 2,200 men, and until 1615, this was paid for with subsidies from England. After this date, the subsidy was steadily reduced, and Irish taxes made up the shortfall, though it was still a significant expense for the English treasury. The reason that the military cost was still so high is that the army was still at the same size as the Elizabethan force which had fought the Nine Years' War. Peace or no, the Dublin government remained on a war footing. 
Middlesex, in his usual idiom, sought to change this. To identify the serious failings of the English administration and bring the expense down. Maybe even bring some income back across the Irish Sea. The commission which arrived in Dublin had an exhaustive remit. They toured the various plantations, of course, but investigated both church and state to find out what was going wrong. They based themselves in Dublin and combed through the government records like any good postgrad student, as well as interviewing civil, military and judicial officials. Those who had complaints about the Dublin government were invited to speak with them, as were those who had ideas for how to better run things. This included the increasingly sidelined Catholic gentry and nobility. The conclusion of this report? Corruption. Corruption, incompetence, and general mismanagement was suppressing the Crown's income and harming good governance. Across both church and state, the New English Protestant governing class needed serious reform. It was a damning conclusion, backed up with evidence and testimony, and it was suppressed. The report was neither published nor officially discussed in Parliament, and the reform which it recommended went undone. I'm going to quote directly from Canny's Making Ireland British, which is a fantastic book. It's a bit of a long quote, but he sums up the results of the commission nicely. Quote, The opinions advanced in 1622 were as various as the number of people who made comment on the subject, but they may be broken down into four distinct categories of responses. Those made by English servitors in Ireland, who had a vested interest in the plantations and who, for the most part, enjoyed the support of the Duke of Buckingham. Those advanced by planters in Ireland, especially the undertakers in Ulster, who had been severely criticised by the commissioners because of their neglect for the conditions they had agreed to fulfil. Those made by reforming officials and English parliamentarians who generally sought to advance the policies of fiscal rectitude favoured by Middlesex. And finally, those made by old English landowners who had suffered an eclipse in political power and influence during the reign of King James and who grasped at this fresh opportunity to offer an opinion on the direction of public policy for Ireland. Each of the four groups who volunteered opinions had different concerns, but all recognised that if their criticism was to have any impact, it would have to proceed from the premise that the policy of plantation, which had been embraced by the King for advancing reform in both Scotland and Ireland, was just and potentially beneficial. Their agreement ended. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. 
We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Canny covers the arguments of several members of these groups, and they're very useful to illustrate the factions at work in Ireland. Sir Francis Ainsley was a servitor, one of those men on the front lines, so to speak, of the plantation effort. Unsurprisingly, Ainsley reported to Middlesex that the failures of the plantation system were down to the undertakers, who had kept native Irish on their lands and failed to develop the territory. He proposed a punitive system of fines to be levelled at undertakers who failed to meet their contractual obligations, double rent for those who now tried to meet their promises, and triple rent for those who didn't even try. Failing that, Ainsley argued for the Crown to seize the land, and for it to be granted to undertakers who were committed, quote, to the establishment of peace and civility to posterity in that province which was the most barbarous, and from whence, before intermixture of British amongst them, did proceed the greatest mischiefs of this kingdom. Naturally, he considered himself to be one of those undertakers who were so committed to the royal project and in so need of favour. Another servitor who contributed to the commission was Sir William Parsons, the Surveyor-General and another client of Buckingham. In his role as Surveyor-General, Parsons recounted a detailed history of all the plantations attempted by the English Crown since Mary I, and he made it clear that plantation was a successful policy that should be continued. He emphasised a civilising mission of the English going back centuries. Except where the plantations had taken root, quote, everything was yet in the natural, little or no improvement made by enclosing, planting fruits, making meadows and changing cattle, searching into mines or minerals, working the country commodities, bringing in trade, skilful ploughmen, traffic or learning, end quote. This was not a new argument, but it will be repeated for centuries as justification for colonisation. The land just wasn't being used properly. 
and the natives, if there were any, were unskilled and uncivilized. Now, in most areas colonized, there were indeed quite large populations of indigenous people, and the question of how land should be properly used and what was considered civilized is, of course, highly subjective. Those making this argument tend to have a material interest in pushing these claims, much like Parsons. Parsons likewise blamed any shortcomings on the failures of plantation on lazy or unscrupulous undertakers. Another commissioner was the vice-treasurer, Sir Francis Blundell, who was a new arrival to Dublin. Like Parsons, he claimed that plantation was the best way to, quote, reduce that country to civility, end quote. But unlike Parsons, he was quite clear in his view that all the plantations, except for the one at Wexford, were failures. This included Ulster, which remained a world of Irish. Like the other two, Blundell blamed the undertakers, and like the other two, we can see a very clear motivation for him to do so. For £100, he had bought the right to take a slice of the fines levied against undertakers who failed to meet their contracts. The undertakers had their own views, of course. They could point to the greatly increased income to the Crown since the plantations began, even if it was lower than expected or hoped. Everyone benefited from plantation, one of them argued, whether they were British or Irish, and a man earning a living in peace was less likely to resort to war. The lack of investment from most undertakers were justified in two ways. Those who could afford to invest had done so, and the others? Well, not everyone had the money. But if they were given a few more years, it was obvious they would scrounge something together and finish the job. Allowing Gaelic-Irish tenants was necessary because it could attract them to the true church and add in to their financial prosperity and therefore the peace of the kingdom. The servitors were not the only ones with a say and English parliamentarians laid the blame for the plantation on them. Their rapid advancement was not unnoticed, to quote Canny, The king himself was so impressed by such stories of rags to riches that he concluded that His beloved subjects and servitors in Ireland deserved no further reward since they had already been advanced and ennobled as well or better than any other captains in Europe, and because many of them had become corrupt in the process. The servitors in Ulster had only created small townships, leaving the Gaelic Irish to continue their lives as normal, ignoring those of their number who had taken the king's shilling, or paid the king in shillings to operate their own plantations. These men had been discredited for giving up the traditional way of life, and so had no power over their kinsmen, or so the reformers said. The church also faced criticism for both failing to maintain their flocks, turning a blind eye to abuses which drove away potential converts to Protestantism, and just otherwise being generally corrupt. The Ulster clergy came under particular attack for their stinginess. They were funded far more than their colleagues elsewhere in the kingdom, yet weren't using these resources to win hearts and minds. So to summarise, the servitors on the commission called for fines and confiscations for those undertakers who had failed to meet their contractual obligations and argued for further plantations. 
both of these would benefit them significantly. The Undertakers insisted that, if they were allowed to proceed as normal, the civilising of the Irish would eventually come to fruition. The Parliamentarian reformers agreed with the Servitors that failing Undertakers required punishment, but instead argued for perfecting the plantations already underway before beginning new ones. The Old English, who were consulted, accepted the existence of the plantations and didn't attempt to undo them, but pressed for further plantation to be prevented, on the grounds that it disinherited loyal subjects, i.e. themselves, and risked leading to unrest. All agreed that this was a decision for the king and his lord deputy. So, after all the effort which had gone into it, why was the Commission's report not published? Why is a good question, with a few answers. Firstly, the people criticised in the report for corruption, incompetence, malfeasance, while these were powerful and influential people, and they didn't like the idea of their names being dragged through the mud. Now, these interest groups spanned the Irish Sea and reached all the way to the top, because, of course, the Duke of Buckingham had his fingers in this particular pie. His clients were among those criticised, and his reputation would similarly suffer if it emerged that he had supported vast levels of incompetence. Of course, his own financial gain at the expense of the realm would be brought to light under this reform. All of this would be music to his enemies' ears, and they were already building an entire playlist of his failures. Though I don't want to oversell Villiers' involvement, there were plenty of others lobbying to bury the report. There's also the international factor to consider. The report urged swift action to reform the Dublin administration, root and branch. Reform on this level was naturally disruptive, would cause resentment, and damaged the fragile peace between the multiple factions of Irish society, the Gaelic Irish, Anglo-Irish, New English, and the Scots and Welsh, never mind the religious divide. Upsetting the apple cart when war with Spain was becoming increasingly likely seemed like a dangerous idea. Another war in Ireland would either require the Stuarts to stay out of the European war, or risk Spanish silver and Spanish soldiers aiding an Irish rebellion as indeed they had during the Nine Years' War. This logic meant that the War Party, who had been some of the loudest voices pushing for an investigation into Irish finances, now had to pump the brakes. The final nail in the coffin of the report was the fall of Middlesex himself, which we've already covered, but it's important to recognise the Irish element to his fall. His commission had threatened the vested interests on both sides of the Irish Sea, not just Buckingham, and his push to reduce the military expenditure for Ireland, for perfectly valid financial reasons, now became another complaint in the barrage that faced him, as he had risked leaving Ireland open to foreign invasion, or so his critics could argue. Despite the fall of its champion and its absence from public debate, the report did influence English policy. Firstly, the Lord Deputyship would no longer be granted to individuals with large personal interests in Ireland. The role was meant to safeguard the Crown's interest above all, and being a step removed from local factions would make arbitration a bit easier. Naturally, 
The New English lobbied against this trend, and whenever the position of Lord Deputy was open, they pressed relentlessly for one of their number to be appointed, though they repeatedly failed. The Commission had also proven that consultation with the Irish, including Catholics, was a viable method of maintaining order. Fancy that. If dissent could be siphoned off with words, and not swords, all the better. The report also made explicitly clear that on almost every level, civil, religious, military, and judicially, the Crown had failed to transform the Kingdom of Ireland. The two Lord Deputies before the outbreak of the war will both make great use of the information and recommendations of the Commission. However, as we will see, both would find themselves tempted by the possibilities for personal gain. We'll finish up with St. John's story. After nearly six years as Lord Deputy, St. John, now Viscount Grandison, was recalled to London in April 1622 and pressured to resign. He had been thoroughly tarnished by the report, and if he didn't resign, he would be sacked. St. John continued to keep the King's favour, though. He was appointed to the Privy Council shortly after his return, and in 1624 was made part of a commission alongside his former colleague, Arthur Chichester, which met to consider further plantation of Ulster. After Chichester's death in 1625, St. John became the Lord High Treasurer of Ireland. He would only return to Ireland in 1630 to settle his estates, as he was ill and not recovering, and a few months later he would die. His career was almost typical of the new English class that governed Ireland. Steady advancement through service, with a healthy investment in the plantations which were spreading throughout the kingdom. Thank you to everyone who filled out the survey. It's been really interesting to see everyone's responses, and it's definitely going to help guide the course of Pax Britannica over the next year or more. Since my last episode, which really was a while ago, the podcast has had its one-year anniversary, and has been downloaded more than 275,000 times. All amazing stuff. So thank you, everyone who has shared or reviewed Pax Britannica. I can't believe it's already been a year. I really don't know where the year's gone. I also really need to apologise for the break in episodes. Chances are, it won't be the last time. There won't be an episode next Sunday, for example, uh, because I'm away at a conference this week, and there'll be irregular episodes more often than I'd like. Chapters are coming due, it's a final year, all this kind of jazz. However, I'm hoping that once I reach the narrative of The Wars of the Three Kingdoms, Episodes will be coming weekly, or even, if I'm really productive, twice weekly, because the research will be much more self-contained, I'll be able to research multiple episodes at once rather than single slots. Thanks to Robin for opening today's episode. It was an absolute treat to have a pint or four, five, with him in Boston. He's genuinely the nicest guy, and if you don't already listen to the history of Byzantium, then you absolutely should. I actually envy you if you haven't, because you have so much good stuff to enjoy for the first time. Since the last episode, we have had a few more additions to the House of Lords. So, please join me in welcoming our new peers of the realm. Tarek, Earl of Richmond. Christopher Wood, Earl of Chatham. Paul Trufasu, Earl of Kent. Steve Cloutier, 
Earl of Chester, Russell Steinthal, Earl of Dudley, Notker Kirkgesner, Viscount Hamden, Jake Hall, 1st Baron Hall, and William Turner, 1st Baron Turner. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter, at Britannica Pax. You can follow me personally on Twitter, at Samuel Hume 10. And both of those accounts will keep you up to date with what's happening with the podcast, as well as other things I found interesting on the internet. Thank you to everyone who's reviewed the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. <laughs>